Success Stories is presented by TheConstantInvestor.com. I'm Alan Kohler, and every week my writing and podcasts put the financial world in context with a focus on the issues that matter. As a member of The Constant Investor, you can also access our exclusive Facebook group where I'll answer your questions directly. Join us today. It's just a dollar for the first month. Now here's Catherine Robson with a success story. Mary Jo Capps has a job that many classical music lovers would die for. She's the CEO of one of Australia's preeminent arts organisations, Music Aviva, which brings internationally significant artists to stages and classrooms around Australia. Mary Jo has been recognised not only for her contribution to the arts, but also her business leadership. She was the first ever female president of the Sydney Business Chamber and a director of the New South Wales Business Chamber. Her careful planning and continual skill development demonstrate that you can make a living doing something that you love. I manage a most magnificent company, which was established a long time ago, 70-odd years ago, Music Aviva. And it has two main arms. One is giving public concerts, and the other is operating extensive education programs across the country. And is it chamber music or a whole range of classical music? Well, we say that it's ensemble music. So that is, yes, it is a smaller group. It is generally one player per part. So that distinguishes it from an orchestra, for instance. But we have a very broad definition of chamber music. So we have Indigenous music our program, Indonesian music, West African drumming, but the core of our, particularly our concert program, is the Western canon of chamber music. So that's string quartets, piano trios, piano soloists, things where it's a very intimate performance and a great communication between the performer and the audience. You're originally Canadian. How did you find yourself here in Australia embedded in the cultural scene in Australia? Well, it was a bit of a journey. I did my master's in music at the University of Toronto. And after graduating, I realized if I was going to get a job in music somewhere that wasn't teaching, that wasn't performing, I knew that neither of those was going to be my career. But in recognizing that I actually wanted to work in the industry of music rather than as a performer, I had no idea what that would entail. There were no leaflets. There was no information on what else you could do. And I also knew I had to go to a smaller city somewhere. So if that was going to be Porcupine in Saskatchewan or that was going to be Perth in Western Australia. And I had a couple of friends who had moved there. They said, come on down, the weather's beautiful. And I did, and it was. So I very fortunately landed a job with the ABC. And I didn't know in those days that the ABC ran orchestras. And that's where I ended up working and within a very short time was managing the West Australian Symphony. So it was a, you know, we're talking about 1979, 1980. This was pre-Allen Bond, pre-America's Cup. You know, the dinosaurs were roughly still on the the plains, but it was a, a great time of opportunity in the West. And then you broadened out to run your own sort of consulting business for a period of time. Well, I knew in at a, after a certain length of time, about three and a half years, that Perth had been wonderful, but I had really exhausted the opportunities for me there. And if I was going to be serious about getting ahead, I would need to move to Sydney. So again, sort of the second strategic move I've made, and there haven't been many, because I do think that someone once said, 
a career path is only visible in hindsight, and I think that's really true. Certainly in my case, it has been. I moved to Sydney and found it enormously disappointing because it was that much bigger that they weren't welcoming the 20-something who was saying, I'll have a go at that. I'll, let me try that. I'm, I'm more than happy to volunteer to do that. Worked really well in Perth. Not so well in Sydney. There were a lot more shut doors. So I had to reinvent myself a few times. And in the course of that, ended up establishing my own company and found that the gap at that stage was really in operational matters. I could organize things well in the arts industry. And the big emerging area, which was very new at that time, which was in development, that is raising money from corporate sponsors and from private donors. It was a whole new scene. Nobody really knew what the rule book was here. So we got to make up the rules as we went along and make a lot of mistakes. My mother worked in corporate development for a not-for-profit organisation through maybe a similar period of time. And it strikes me that during that period of time, there was enormous goodwill between corporates and not-for-profits as they worked around the emergence of, you know, how do you work together to achieve common objectives? Was that your experience? Very much so, although there was a lot to be learned, certainly. And for me, the fantastic experience was the first time working with a North American company who was more used to a corporate sponsorship atmosphere and, and the rules. And they understood that the not-for-profits were not supposed to be the ones making up the, uh, the benefits or what it was that the corporates were going to want. I think prior to that, there'd been a lot of corporates throwing money and then expecting the not-for-profits to somehow imagine how that was going to improve their business. So that was a big learning, was to say, oh, well, it was a big organization then it was a, that I was working with, American Express, and they actually had a very well thought out sponsorship policy. So it was like, oh, that's how it could be. Starting off with a musicology qualification and then fast forwarding to now where you're the CEO of an organization that's quite complex, presumably you've needed to build a whole suite of new skills, including financial skills, human resource management skills. What are those skills and how have you managed to develop them? Well, I would say that on a practical level, my university training prepared me for nothing of what I do now, other than appreciating and understanding the content of what we present. But all those practical skills for actually running a company have been very much picked up along the way. I was very fortunate to be given a scholarship to Harvard Business School. That was a huge eye-opener. And, and how did you secure that scholarship? Well, there was a um, through the Harvard Club in Sydney, they offered two scholarships a year for the not-for-profits. It's very highly competitive. And so I was very lucky. I it took me a couple of goes to get a scholarship, but that got you to Harvard Business School for this amazing course in strategic perspectives for not-for-profits. The content was less important than the thinking skills and just how to analyze a problem, pull it apart, and also be very honest about your own deficiencies. I realized I had a lot to learn about financial management, 
I undertook study and I did a lot of financial management for non-finance managers. And I've been blessed with amazing CFOs who have been so generous um, in their training of me that um, I I'm, feel very confident in that area now. The HR side, I have certainly spent a lot of time taking courses, spending time, but it's also an area in which I'm just innately really interested in, and working with people is the biggest gratification in what I do. I wonder, though, if it's even harder to run a business in a not-for-profit environment to the extent that you just don't have last year's built-up reserves to rely on if you want to do new investment. Do you think that you've needed to hone your skills as a business person in a way that's more challenging than if you had have done another to- sort of job? I think money is one aspect of it. Certainly, you do have to cut your cloth to suit, but everybody has some financial restraints. Even if they're working in a what a seemingly flush environment, everybody has to make do with what they've got. So, yes, that's tough, but I think the tougher aspect is actually in a not-for-profit, you have to do everything that a for-profit has to do and work with, and you have to work with volunteers, and which is a wonderful element, but it's a very different HR problem and opportunity to have. So I'd say it's a little bit like the Ginger Rogers, you know, I do everything that Fred does only backwards and in heels. Um, it's sort of the same for a not-for-profit leader, I think, that we do everything that our for-profit people do um, and our colleagues in the, in the commercial world. But yes, we have very limited resources. We have a lot of stakeholders we need to please. And we have this added element of how do we engage people who are working in that field with us, not because they're getting paid, but because they want to be there. You became the president of the Sydney Business Chamber, the first woman to hold that role since the organisation's inception. In uh, 1825. They were slow learners. (laughs) I mean, I think it must have taken enormous uh, courage, I think, to promote yourself to the point where people would recognise that you had a contribution to make, not because you're a woman, but you come from the art sector, it's not a natural fit necessarily, or people wouldn't necessarily assume it would be part of the business chamber. What was your experience like being the president? It was terrific. I really was very honoured to be asked. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that a woman had taken over in the management of that and had been a very successful politician herself and recognised how well we could work together in So that who regard. was that? That was... Patricia Forsyth. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And uh, remains there. She's an amazing force of nature. I just, I learned a huge amount from her in terms of advocacy to politicians and just weaving through those corridors of power. She's terrific. And I think that... When we say, you know, how does one get... I I was persistent. I was there for a long time. I think I'd been on the board for maybe eight or nine years. So it was not an overnight thing by any means. And there were good times and bad times uh, during those eight and nine years. So um, I think that uh, earning stripes was was fairly self-evident in that time. 
but really, I, I worked with such wonderful people. They were really the, the ones who helped make all that happen. You've been very active in your professional life. When you work a lot, you know, the, any 80 hours a week you want, does it come with some personal trade-offs? Absolutely. I've got the most patient children in the world who are not used to eating before nine, which is really handy. They're now in their 20s, so they continue to eat at nine, I think, even though they're no longer at home. Um, and a, an extremely supportive partner. So that's made a huge difference in being able to, to fulfill all that. A lot of the work, too, in the evenings is going to concerts, going to other events, in which case I can actually do that with a member of the family, and that's enormously helpful. I'm not locked in a room slaving over papers every night. I think that it re- has been very important for me to ensure that I continue to do things for myself. And that was a slow learning, especially when the kids were little. I seemed to be coming last and I'd get to sort of the end of the year and think, what have I done for me this year? Nothing. So I really became very religious about getting to the gym, about going to Pilates or yoga or you know whatever the program. And and I do love eating, so making time to cook, thats especially when I've been traveling, that's a great grounder when I get back, is just being able to um, lose myself in some new recipes. It's been good fun. And from discussions we've had over time, it sounds like you've had to work quite hard on the family front, that it hasn't always been smooth sailing, that, that there have been traumatic periods in your life that have meant that you know, balancing work and, and home life have been more challenging? Well, I think it got brought home to me very early on and very tragically in that my first husband committed suicide. And it made me realise that you're here for now, you have to make the most of every minute, that you have to learn what you're responsible for and what you're not responsible for. And that's a big thing, I think, particularly for women, to not feel responsible for everything. And that it made me more resilient in the end. Um, It was a a very sad loss and very sad for him that dealing with depression was a battle he lost. But the learning that I took from that was very much getting on with every day and giving it your, your utmost. And I presume having had that experience, as you say, makes you very focused on doing things you really enjoy and that you have passion for and that if you are going to be working hard on things, you get a sense that it's not only benefiting you but it's benefiting others. Is that part of your philosophy? Absolutely, that I know every day when I get up that there is something wonderful going to happen at work and as a result of the things that we're all doing at Music Aviva, there are kids' lives being transformed, there are wonderful musicians performing for audiences. That just makes a huge difference, and we've certainly tried to instill that in our children as well, to say, do what you love, the rest will follow. It probably means that they won't be buying us that villa in Tuscany anytime soon, but they are likewise pursuing what they really love, and I think that's given them a freedom to think, it's okay, you can actually pursue a career in the arts and still live, you still be comfortable, it's okay. Have you been able to translate some of those learnings about running businesses and um, financial disciplines into your own financial life? And are there any things that you've done 
well that you would recommend to your kids or to people who come to you looking for mentoring? I do talk about setting up a financial plan. I was very good about financial planning at work, not so great at home. And although I, I, and I do enjoy a spreadsheet, as everybody <laughs> who knows me would say, that actually then taking that to a professional and saying, what does this look like 10, 20 years ahead? And that was probably one of the best investments that we made collectively, was setting up a financial plan and really thinking about what the options might be, how do we best prepare for them. Any particular books that you recommend to people, either that you've read for pleasure and you just enjoyed that you'd recommend, or books or other resources that you've pointed to in your career that have helped you progress? In a career sense, I think that probably the most impactful book for me was Good to Great. Um, I know lots of people cite Jim Collins, and <laughs> I'm sure he wishes he got a royalty every time his name was mentioned, but it is such a profound book. For me, it was also a little bit back to your earlier point of not needing to know everything, that the role of leadership in not being the flamboyant, headline-grabbing, those are often not the people who make a real difference and uh, make a sustainable organization. It's the people who plug away at it, who don't change jobs every 18 months, but are actually there to make a long-term difference. And that was, for me, a, a, a very big life changer to think, well, no, I don't actually have to be chopping and changing all the time to do the right thing. There are a couple of books that I go back to that I've absolutely adored. Imaginary Life, An Imaginary Life by David Maloof is possibly one of my favorite books of all time. It's so musical in its language, and it really makes you think about communication, what it's like to be outside of your own comfort zone. It's about the exile of Cicero into a language pool in Gaul that he didn't speak. And so a man who had relied so strongly on his language was suddenly unable to communicate with the people around him. And what, so what it's like to not be in your own home country, what it's not like to really learn to communicate with other people. And just Maloof's writing is just so glorious that I, I just... I go back to that frequently. And more recently, you know when you read those sort of books and you think, I don't want to read anything else for a while. It's been so good, I just want to savor the taste of that. And that would be Donna Tartt's um, Goldfinch, which is just remarkable. I guess in both of them there's that, that thread of passion, uh, which I, I particularly find that resonates for me. You are originally a Canadian, so going to David Maloof's story, what are your observations about what's different about Australia? It's probably more about what's the same between Canada and Australia, that it's, uh, they're, they're very much aligned countries, small population, big land mass, busily defining ourselves by who we're not, um, and, and similar senses of humour. There's a lot that is, is similar. Um, but what I particularly, I mean, many people have said it's, Australia's like Canada with good weather. Um, but I think that what I particularly appreciate in Australia is there's an incredible openness. I think Canadians still hold some of that overly polite, overly apologetic thing. 
and um, Australians, I, I just have, in the many decades that I've lived here now, I really appreciate the openness and honesty and, um, as some of my friends say, you'll never die wondering what I was thinking. <laughs> so thinking about the future, what are the things that you're really excited about? I'm enormously excited about the changing landscape for jobs in Australia. I think that there's been huge growth in the professionalization of the not-for-profits and therefore attracting more and more capable people. I look at the people working now in the not-for-profit sector and I'm amazed. There are particularly amazing young women in it and I just love their hunger for experiences, for knowledge, coming in with great ideas. That, to me, makes the world turn. That, that's so exciting. And what's in the future for you? Oh, heaven knows. I've got some big challenges ahead at Music Aviva. We've just been through an amazing year and we're about to, we've just taken on the Melbourne Chamber Music Competitions. We've just bought a new building, which we're hoping to make into a creative hub for small to medium organisations. That's in Sydney? In Sydney. Yep. And we've just changed the whole governance of the organisation. So we've got some big challenges ahead to get that bedded down. So for the foreseeable future, I just keep reinventing at Music Aviva. Hopefully also look around at different boards that I might, I'm, I'm certainly keen to now put my AICD training into some practical um, placement. Well, it's been wonderful to spend some time with you. Congratulations on an amazing organisation that you've helped build and maintain. Thank you very much. Thank you. Success Stories was presented by TheConstantInvestor.com. Our theme music was written and performed by Broke Free.